these next three weeks that God would bless us as we study the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Because the book of Jonah is a story about God's relentless grace towards sinners who run from him. The, the meaning of this story is, is, is a meaning of grace. It is about God's persistent grace, his stubborn grace, his undying grace, his pursuing grace. It is a story that reveals what our hearts are like. Our hearts are like Jonah's. We are all Jonah's. We run from God. Our hearts are prone to sin and to disobedience and to following after our own ways and to following after the desires of our own hearts. We want to substitute our priorities for God's priorities, our will for His will, our plan for His plan. We want to go our own way. That is what our hearts are like. And yet this story also reveals what God's heart is like. What is God's heart like toward those who would run from him? God's heart is a heart of grace. And God's grace is his sovereign initiative to run after, to pursue, to follow after, to restore those sinners who would want nothing to do with him, who would want to flee from his presence. And what this book teaches us is that God's grace is relentless. He will not stop. He will not let us go our own way. He will not let our rebellion succeed. He will hunt us down. He will find us. He will seek us. And he will bring us back to himself. And so the essence of this book is a message of sin and grace. It is sin and grace. Sin is running from God. Grace is God pursuing the sinner. Sin is fleeing from God's presence. Grace is God's initiative to find the sinner and to bring him back to himself. Sin and grace are at the heart of the book of Jonah. And that is why to grasp the heart of the book of Jonah is to be taken deeper into the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because what is the gospel except a message of sin and grace? Except a message that all of us have gone our own way. All of us have done what is, what is right in our own eyes, but God has sent Jesus Christ to pursue us, to find us when we were lost, and to restore us into a relationship with God. This book will take us deeper into the gospel because, dear brothers and sisters, the gospel, it doesn't plop out of nowhere in the New Testament. It's not like the New Testament opens and it's like, wow, this is something that we've never heard of before. No, the gospel was anticipated for generations and for centuries in the Old Testament. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see pictured the coming Savior who would die for our sins and would make atonement for our iniquities. And in the book of Jonah, we see the gospel as it is anticipated, as it is foreshadowed, as it is prophesied. And we find a message that God is relentless in his grace. God will pursue us. And I just tell you, I just, I just looked at this book and I just, over the last number of weeks, I've been just, I've been just needing to hear the message of this book. Because I look at my heart and my heart is so fickle. 
My heart is so distracted. It's so divided. My love for God is so weak. Amina and I, we've been just talking in, 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 our, in our home, in our marriage. We've just been confessing to each other just how small our love for God is. Maybe that's surprising. Maybe you think that pastors, families, they just sit around talking about, oh, we just love God so much. And, and, and it's just not true. We've just been confessing that, that our love for God is so small. It's so weak. And I used to, when I was a young Christian, think that, man, I love God. I love God so much. I love God so much more than other people. I love God uh, so fervently. And as you grow and as you mature, you begin to see the depths of your own heart. And you begin to see, oh, my love for God. It's not that I love God less, but I see how weak my love for God is. I see how divided my heart is. I see how dis- easily distracted I am from God by so many inconsequential things. And we've just been confessing to each other how, how small our love for God is. And oh, I need the book of Jonah because the book of Jonah reminds me that, that Dan, your, your security does not rely upon your love for God. Your security depends upon God's love for you. And although your heart is divided, and though every day you wake up with the heart of Jonah wanting to go your own way, wanting to go astray, wanting to follow your own desires instead of God's desires, God will hunt you down. And he will follow you. He will find you and pursue you. David said in Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, shall pursue me, shall find me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that is the confidence of every true believer in Christ, that God's grace will pursue us. He will not relent, though time and time again our stubborn hearts desire to go astray. God's grace is more stubborn than even we are. And the book of Jonah reminds us of these glorious truths of God's relentless grace. Alexander White, who was a Scottish preacher, lived 100 years ago, studied the book of Jonah, meditated on the book of Jonah, sought to apply his heart to the book of Jonah, and in the end of his study, he concluded this. He said, I am Jonah. I am Jonah. Jonah ran from God and I run from God. Jonah insisted on his own way and I insist on my own way. Jonah rebelled against God's command and how many times do I rebel against God's command? Jonah substituted his plans for God's will. How many times do I insist on following my way instead of God's way? I am Jonah. This is my heart, and yet my God pursues me. My God finds me. My God will not relent until he brings me to himself. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it. Seal it for thy course above. That is the confession of every true Christian. That is the confession of every true believer. Lord, we're so prone to wander, pursue me, find me, rescue me. And the book of Jonah says that God will pursue us as he pursued Jonah. Now maybe you're saying this morning, oh, I'm looking forward to the next three weeks because 
wow, Dan, I, I love messages about grace. I mean, messages about, about, about grace are so comforting, they're so soothing, they're so heartwarming, and I just look forward to coming every Sunday and just settling in my chair and just letting God's grace ooze over me like a, like a light summer breeze and just being comforted for the next three weeks. Well, let me just kind of uh, shatter those expectations. What we're going to see in the book of Jonah is that God's grace, while it is the most joyful subject in the world, is a most uncomfortable subject. In fact, it is the most radical concept that this world has ever experienced, and it is the most unnatural thing in the world for our hearts to live by grace and to, and to love grace. We're going to see in this book that grace is, is perplexing. It, it is it is angering to the heart. It, it is outrageous at times. We're going to see that even mature believers, even spiritual leaders, even men of God like Jonah don't understand God's grace. That they find it to be offensive. And they are outraged at the meaning of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, this, this is going to be a, a, a joyful topic, a wonderful topic. It's going to be a topic that, that ministers to our heart, but it is not going to be comfortable. I'm praying that, that God would, would rock your world through an understanding of his grace, that you would never see the world again the same. You would never see people again the same. You would never see the church again the same. You never see your friends the same again because you have been so captured by this transcendent understanding of God's grace and that God would bring you to your knees before the wonders of his love and his mercy. This is Paul's prayer that we will see the height and the depth and the width and the length of God's love for us in Christ that our lives would be radically changed. And if you come to God's grace and you find it to be a comfortable subject, then dear brother and sister, you don't understand God's grace. You've substituted some other concept of God's grace for the biblical concept of God's grace because this is a most perplexing subject. And so what I want us to see in Jonah chapter one as we begin our study this morning are three perplexing questions about God's grace. Three perplexing questions that, that will confuse us, that will surprise us, that will change our comfortable understandings of who God is and, and what he has done for us. And these are questions that I believe arise from the text as we look at Jonah chapter 1. The first perplexing question that we find in the book of Jonah is why Nineveh? Why Nineveh? Chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And the immediate question that arises from this passage is why Nineveh? Why does God send Jonah to Nineveh of all places in the world, of all cities that Jonah could have gone to? Why does God single out and circle for special consideration and mercy the city of Nineveh? 
there's, there's no shortage of places that God could have sent Jonah. Jonah ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. There were plenty of cities that God could have sent him to. And Jonah ministered in one of the worst, darkest times of Israel's history. He ministered under the reign of Jeroboam II, who was an evil, wicked king. And so the land was in the spiritual darkness, and cities were in spiritual darkness, and God could have sent Jonah to any city to preach the word of God. And he could have circled out any city for special consideration and favor. Why does he choose Nineveh of all places? Nineveh is not in the nation of Israel. Nineveh is a Gentile city. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were the perennial enemies of Israel. They were the perennial enemies of God's people. They persecuted God's people. In fact, it was 150 years after Jonah's time that the Syrians was actually come to the nation of Israel and plunder it and take it captive in the great Assyrian captivity of 722 BC. Why Nineveh? Nineveh was teeming with pagan idolaters who hated God and who exercised the worst kinds of wickedness. In fact, the name Nineveh comes from a special cult that resided in the city that worshipped the goddess Nina. And from Nina came Nineveh. So it was a city named after a pagan idol. And these people, we are, we are not overstating it when we say that they were the worst of sinners. They fully expressed the depravity that was in their own heart. In fact, even to secular historians, the Assyrians are noted in human history for their utmost brutality and violent wickedness. One historian writes this, the Assyrians de feature deliberate terror and atrocity as instruments of foreign policy. In the chronicles of their reigns, Assyria's kings boasted of their brutalities for everyone to read and hear about. One such king who lived a hundred years before Jonah's time said this of his exploits, I caused great slaughter, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned, I took their warriors prisoners, I impaled them on stakes, many captives I buried in a fire, many I took alive, some I cut off their hands, others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers, I put out their eyes, I burned their young men and women to death. He's writing with cold pleasure and a boastful heart of all the wicked things that he has done. This same king responded to a group of rebellious royal officials by skinning them alive. He writes of what he did with the human skins. Some he spread out on the pile of bodies. Others he placed on stakes driven amid the pile. Some he hung on the walls. There were human skins on the walls of Nineveh as a testament and a trophy to his brutality. And he says, thus have I constantly established my victory and strength over the land. You might be saying, Dan, why are you telling us this? This is nauseating. It's disgusting. It is it's despicable. And I would, I would say to you, that's the point. Why Nineveh? They were a disgusting people. They were a nauseating people. When, when Jonah heard the call to go to Nineveh, his heart would have been revolted at the utmost wickedness of who these people were. Why does God send Jonah 
to Nineveh, not only to preach judgment and wrath, but to give them an opportunity to repent that they may receive mercy and grace and compassion by God. In the book of Nahum, God proclaimed his judgment against this city. He said, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? And Jonah would have heard that prophecy and Jonah would have said, Amen. Judge them, God. Pour your wrath and your destruction upon this wicked city and wipe them from the face of the earth. Amen. That made sense to Jonah. What didn't make sense to Jonah was go to Nineveh and preach to them the word of God and give them an opportunity to repent that they would receive mercy and grace and compassion. Why Nineveh? Of all the places in the world, why does God send Jonah to this pagan city. And what I, was, what I would say to this is, is that there are times in redemptive history, there are times in church history, there are times even in our church where God chooses the very worst of sinners to be objects of his grace and his forgiveness and his love. If for no other reason than to show the world that this is really how big and how wide and how high and how long my grace and love really are. It's as if God, in order to show us this is how big my grace is, he has to find a really bad sinner to forgive. He has to find the most defiled, wicked, sinful rebel and completely forgive them of all their sins to show everyone my grace is really this big. My grace is really this sufficient. My grace is really this amazing. And in this case, God wants to put his grace on display. He wants to show the world how big his grace really is. And so, as an object to receive his grace, he chooses Nineveh. I can forgive these people. I can restore these people. If my grace is extended towards these people, they will repent. They will be brought to me. Apostle Paul said that's why he was a Christian. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he said, I was a blasphemer, an insolent opponent. I was a persecutor of the church. I killed Christians. Why am I a Christian? It's because God wanted to show an example to the world that this is how big his grace really is. 
And in order for God to demonstrate his grace, he had to find a really bad sinner. And I qualified. Because I was a persecutor of the church. That's why I'm a Christian. It's to be an example to all that this is how big God's grace really is. Brother and sister, what I would ask us this morning is do we believe this? Do we believe this? Do we believe that God's grace is really this big? Uh, do we believe that God's grace is really this powerful? Do we believe that God's grace is really this sufficient? Do we believe that God's grace it can be really this victorious in the human heart? That no matter what the crime, no matter who the man is, no matter how hard his heart, no matter how vile his former life, if God will sovereignly dispense grace to a man, he will repent and he can be forgiven of all his sins. Do we believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that the person in your life, the hardest person you know, and I know when I say that two or three person pop into your mind, their faces pop into your mind. These are the hardest people you know. They're the most blasphemous. They're the most wicked in speech. They're the most defiled. They're the most hardened toward God. Do you believe that God's grace can reach even the Ninevites of your life? Those who, who we feel sometimes are beyond the reach of God's grace. And, and if, if we don't, if our response is that, that we don't believe that, then brothers and sisters, we are Jonah. We are Jonah. Because we look at the Ninevites and we say, God, just judge them. There's no hope for them. Just put away with them. And in our self-righteousness, we limit God's grace. We confine God's grace. We restrict God's grace. And we usually, in our pride, restrict God's grace to people who are most like us. God can save him because he talks like me, walks like me, went to the same school as me, had the same family as me. Yeah, God can save him, but that guy, God can't save him because he's not like me. And we forget Brothers and sisters, that grace is unmerited favor. The very definition is that there is nothing in us that did anything to deserve God's grace. But like Jonah, we are captured by our national pride, our ethnic pride, the works that we have done, and we see ourselves as more deserving of God's grace and we see others as less deserving of God's grace. And the problem is that we have not experienced God's grace. Some of us are Jonah. We are believers. We are Christians. We are maybe even be spiritual leaders we may be even those who speak the word of God. And yet, God's grace has not broken through to our hearts in such a way 
that we see the world differently, we see people differently, and we are compelled to go to the worst of sinners and to be an agent of God's grace in their lives. We are Jonah. If we see anyone as beyond the reach of God's grace, and what I'll just call us to as as, as as brothers and sisters, is that is to understand that a missionary heart must begin with a grace-filled heart. A missionary heart is a heart that's been overwhelmed by how big the God, grace of God really is in salvation. That sees the world as no match for the sovereign grace of God that desires to preach the gospel indiscriminately without regard to people's personalities or their education or their upbringing or how far they have fallen into sin because we understand that if God sovereignly chooses to save, then even Ninevites will come to faith in Christ. Why Nineveh? Because God delights to demonstrate the greatness of his grace in the worst of sinners. I'll move you to a second question. A second perplexing question found in this text is why Jonah? Why Jonah? In other words, why does God pursue Jonah when Jonah so blatantly and so clearly rebels against God? Why not just write him off? Why not just give up on him? Why not just let him go his own way? Why not just let him sail to Tarshish if that's what he wants to do? He's a has-been. He's through. He used to be a good prophet, but no longer. Why not just give up on the guy and raise up someone else to take his place? Someone who won't disobey. Someone who won't rebel. Why does God pursue Jonah? Chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This, this isn't like Moses who discussed things with God. This is outright rebellion. Nineveh was 500 miles northeast of where Jonah was. Tarshish was 2,000 miles west. It was as far west as you can go in the opposite direction. And Jonah says, you want me to go this way, God? I'm going to go the other way. Why pursue Jonah? Why have patience with Jonah? Why show grace to a believer like this? What we see in this book is that not only unbelievers need grace, but believers need grace. It's not just the unbelievers who run from God, it's believers who run from God. And many people have speculated why Jonah ran from God. Let's be fair to the man. He, he wasn't always a bad prophet. He used to be a good prophet. In 2 Kings 14, Jonah was used by God to restore the boundaries of the nation of Israel. He was a blessed prophet, but this call was so outrageous, it was so offensive to his heart that he ran. 
Why did he run? Well, some say that he was intimidated by the greatness of the city, and that might be the case. Nineveh was a great city. Its walls were 100 feet high and 60 miles around the city. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 calls it the great city. Chapter 3, verse 3 calls it the exceedingly great city. Some say he was intimidated because the city was so big, and that might have been the case. Others said that Jonah may have feared for his life. He would have feared that his skins would be the next skins to be the trophy on the walls of Nineveh. And that might have been the case too. Imagine if God called you to go to Berlin at the height of World War II, at the height of Hitler's reign, and to cry out in the city of Berlin, in 40 days Germany will be destroyed. Or if God were to call you to go to Moscow in the middle of the Cold War and go to Red Square and and stand there with all the nuclear missiles aimed at each other as an American and say, in 40 days... Russia will be destroyed. Or what if God called you to go to Pyongyang and stand in front of the statue of Kim Jong-il and to cry out in 40 days, North Korea will be destroyed. Most of us would fear for our life. And Jonah may have feared for his life. And many people say that maybe that's why Jonah ran. Well, those may have been elements of Jonah's flight, but the real reason, the clear reason, the greatest reason why Jonah ran it's explained for us in Jonah 4, verse 2. This is after Nineveh's repentance. Jonah prays to the Lord and says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You know the reason why Jonah ran from God? It wasn't that he was afraid of failure. It was that Jonah was afraid of success. Jonah was afraid that the Ninevites would actually listen to his preaching. Jonah was afraid that the Ninevites would actually take heed to what he was saying. That they would be warned about the judgment that was to come. That they would humble themselves before God. That they would repent of their sins and iniquities. And he says to God, I know that you are a gracious and a merciful and a loving God. And I knew that if they repented, that you would forgive them. And the most offensive thing to Jonah's heart was to see pagan, idolatrous, violent Ninevites be forgiven of their sin. That's why he ran. It's because he was so offended by God's grace. Why pursue a man like this? Why pursue a man so steeped in self-righteous pride? Why pursue a man so steeped in legalistic pride? Why pursue a man so bent on following his own way? Brother and sister, we learn from this passage that God will not give up on even the most rebellious of believers. God's grace will not give up 
on even the most miserable of failures. If you are a child of God, God will not give up on you. Though you are faithless, he will be faithful. He will not allow your rebellion to be successful. He will not let you live your life apart from his presence. Though you flee from him, he will find you. Though you are lost, you, you will be found and restored. We learn from this passage that, that God, although our sins are great, God's grace is greater. Although our wills are stubborn, God's, God's heart for us is more stubborn. And though everyone would say, though all the world would say, that believer is a has-been, he's washed up, he's through, he's past the line, there's no hope for him anymore, God's grace is able to restore rebellious believers just as it is able to restore pagan unbelievers. God's grace will not let Jonah go, and his love will not let us go. This is, this is where my heart finds rest. This is where I trust your heart will find rest. This is where I trust that, that your heart will find peace. If you are relying upon your faithfulness, your dedication, your commitment, your level of love for God as, as your standard of security before God, your, your spirit, Christian life is going to be a yo-yo up and down the rest of your life. You will never be secure. Our hearts find rest in the sovereign grace of God. He is the one who pursues. He is the one who takes initiative. And there have been times in my own spiritual life when when I've, I've looked at the Lord and I've, and I've said, my heart is so cold, it is so dry, there's nothing that I can even do to make myself love you. I can't even take the first step toward you, oh God. And even in that moment, God was pursuing me just as he is pursuing you. And he is pursuing you even in this hour and even in this day Though your heart may be distracted, though your heart may seek to flee from him, he will find you. He will walk with you outside of these doors and he will hunt you down. And you will not be able to outrun the relentless grace of God. God's grace is extended to pagan idolaters like the Ninevites. God's grace is extended to rebellious believers like Jonah there's a third perplexing question that arises from this text. And that is, why the storm? Why the storm? Verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled the great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jump down to verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you. 
For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And verse 15 says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let me just speak to you as a, as a shepherd at this moment. Sometimes the grace of God does not feel like the grace of God. Sometimes the grace of God doesn't feel like a warm blanket or a light summer breeze. But sometimes the grace of God it feels like a storm. It feels like getting rocked from post to post by the wind and the waves. It feels like being thrown into the depths of the ocean, to the raging sea. It feels like being swallowed up alive by a great fish, a great sea creature. Sometimes the grace of God feels like a storm. And we look at Jonah asleep on the boat, going his merry way, on his way to Tarshish. He made his plans and everything's going according to plan. No hiccups, no trials. And most of us would look at that picture of peace and serenity and say, oh, that's the grace of God. When my life is like that, when I've made my own plans and they're all coming to fruition, when I'm resting peacefully, when nothing is bothering me, that is the grace of God. And no, brothers and sisters, that is the curse of God, is to be left to yourself is to have all your plans accomplished in your will and in your rebellion against God. That is the curse of God, to allow your rebellion to succeed and to allow you be the master of your own fate, you to be the captain of your own ship. That is the curse of God. The grace of God is the storm. The grace of God is are the wind and the waves that batter us from post to post and show us that we are not God. That we are not sovereign. That we are not wise. That we are not in control. The grace of God is the storms which break our sinful pride which bring us to our knees, which bring us to the end of ourselves and cause us to cry out like Jonah, I cry out to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. The grace of God is in the storm. 
And in the storm, we feel like God is killing us. We feel like God has abandoned us. We are plunged into the depths of darkness and we feel that God is not there. But God is not killing us in the storm. God is rescuing us in the storm. And God is rescuing us from our most deadly enemy, our most stubborn foe. He's rescuing us from ourselves. He's rescuing us from our self-idolatry. He's rescuing us from our self-reliance, our arrogance. And he is breaking our rebellion. He's breaking our will. And he is doing this in order that we may be brought back to fruitfulness and relationship with himself. I say this not lightly. I say this with fear and trembling in my heart. I'm, I'm not a sailor. I've never been in a storm. And, but I know what it's like to be so enveloped in trials that seem so beyond your capacity that you despair of life and you wonder who God is and, and if he's even there with you. And I know that many in our church, many of you, God has sent the storm into your life, even now. And I want to say to you from the word of God that this is his grace. This is his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. There is love beneath the waves. He intends good to you. He intends to bless you, not harm you. And he is doing a sweet, sweet work of sanctification and humbling and Christ-likeness in your life that could be accomplished in no other way except through the storm. And it is a beautiful work. And it will give glory to God. And it will bring blessing to man. And if this morning finds you in the storm, I just want to plead with you to, to trust his heart. Trust God's heart, though you cannot see his ways. Trust his intention, though you do not understand why it is he does what he does. Trust that he means you good and not evil, that because of the work of Christ, you are his beloved child, and he will withhold no good thing from you. Kiss his rod of discipline. For behind the rod... There is a loving and a kind Father who's pouring His grace into your life. Why the storm? It's the storm because sometimes there's no other way 
to get through to us except by sending the storm into our lives. And the storm is the only way that Jonah would be brought back to God and the only way at times that we are brought back to God. The men here throw Jonah into the depths of the sea. The sea grows quiet. I'll just note this here for you. The verse 16 says, The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That's evidence of that these men, these sailors, actually came to faith in the true and the living God. I mean, there's just grace everywhere in this book. Just grace to Nineveh, grace to Jonah, grace to these pagan sailors. And verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Some of you looking at this, you're saying, all right, finally the fish. Get to talk about the fish. Dan, was it a big fish? How big was it? Did it really swallow up Jonah? Was it a whale? These are the questions my kids ask me. What was it like to be in the belly of a fish? And I'm going to say more about the fish next week. But all I want you to note this morning is the duration, the time that Jonah spent in the belly of the fish. Verse 17 says, He was in the belly of the fish three days and three days. Nights. Jonah went down into the belly of the fish, and in three days he came back up. Jonah went down into the depths of the sea, and three days later he came back up. Jonah went down to the depths of darkness and despair, and three days later he came back up. Fast forward 850 years to the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 12, the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Jesus answered, An even adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus Christ went down into the depths of physical death, and three days later he came back up. Jesus Christ went down to the depths of wrath and judgment, and three days later he came back up. Jesus Christ went down into the heart of the earth, and three days later he came back up. Jesus says, that the story of Jonah is not just a story about how God pursues pagan unbelievers. It is not just a story about how God pursues rebellious believers. It is not just a story of how God sends storms into our lives to save us from ourselves. It is also a story that points forward to the coming of the greatest story ever told, the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth to die for our sins and to rise triumphantly from the grave. Jesus says, this 
is the sign of Jonah. As Jonah went down and came back up, so shall the Son of Man go down into the depths of death and judgment. And three days later, he will come back up. This is the greater story. The story of Jonah points forward to and anticipates. And the most perplexing question, the greatest question, the question that rocks our world and that leaves us speechless is not why Nineveh It's not why Jonah. It's not why the storm. The most perplexing question, brothers and sisters, is why Jesus? Why did God send his son to die for us, wicked and rebellious sinners? Why did he crush his son on our behalf that we would be reconciled to a holy God? Why, Jesus? And we will be in heaven for tens of thousands of years. And we will worship the Lamb for tens of thousands of years. And we will still not fully know the answer to that question. Why did Jesus die for me? Our God is a God of relentless grace. Let's trust him. Let's believe in him. Let's rest in him. Let us rejoice in what Christ has done for us this day. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, once again, we stand freshly amazed by grace. We will never know why you pursue us. We will never know why you sent your son to die for us. These questions perplex us. And yet we thank you that we can rest in your grace, find joy in your grace, find peace in your grace toward us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. We shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For this, we give you great praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.